Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're a church for imperfect people only. We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital, second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestess. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. All right. Uh, So excited. Hey, can we get a round of applause for the fact that we finished up the book of 1 Corinthians? That's a big deal. Amen. Yeah, we should get in the habit of actually just cheering uh, when we finish a book. Uh, we got through it. Um, we looked at a lot of problems, didn't we? Uh, but we were able to learn so much. The Lord was able to use that. And so we're wrapping it up now in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I will do my best to cover and highlight uh, these areas that uh, we need to, in order to finish up. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, You know, I played soccer all throughout my teen years. And I remember, actually, I had two coaches. Uh, One was named Coach D. That's what we'll call him, okay? Coach D. And another was named Coach P, all right? Now, Coach D was my first soccer coach. He was my junior high soccer coach. And I can still remember, he always came onto the field. He had a big pot belly. And he always came on the field with a two liter of soda, whether it's Dr. Pepper or Coke, or Sprite, he would always have that, and he would guzzle it down as he would kind of yell and bark and tell us what to do. I remember one time he called me over, and he said, hey, Dave, he said, son, you're really not that good. I remember he said that to me. Imagine a junior higher hearing that. You're really not that good. You're not really fast. You're not really quick. And so I'm going to put you on the defense, okay? But you need to hang back on defense, closer to the goal, so that nobody beats you. And you need to play in that kind of area. I remember that that influenced me such a great deal. My perspective was I'm slow. I'm not that fast. I'm not that athletic. I'm not that good. And so that's how I would play. I would play all the way in the back of the pitch, okay? And I was always insecure. And I would pray that the ball wouldn't come my way, right? Because I would get beat because I'm not that good. Now, I remember when I got up to high school to JV, I got a new coach. His name was Coach P. And right away, he was so very different from Coach D because he would run with us. Okay, Coach D never did that. He would play with us. And I remember he called me over once, and he said, hey, come over here. And he said, Dave, you have potential. I had never heard that before, right? And so I told him, Coach, I'm slow. I'm not that fast. I'm really not that good. And he said, don't say that. He said, you don't have to be fast. You have good feet. Never heard that before. I have good feet? 
you know? And he told me, hey, we'll work on your footwork, on your strength. And he taught me how to practice. You know, Coach P actually had me over his house for dinner. He actually encouraged me to join his gym. I went to his particular gym, worked out with him many times. And because of Coach P, I started to really blossom and grow. So that in JV and varsity, I played midfield, okay? I didn't, nothing wrong with playing defense, nothing wrong with that, if you play defense, but I played midfield. And I wasn't super fast, but I was super strong. Because I was coached by Coach P to use my body to be aggressive. To this very day, when the World Cup comes, you know who I root for? Not Korea, I root for Germany, okay? Because that's the style of play that the Germans play. Strong, aggressive, kind of bully ball, right? I watch the Bundesliga, okay, the German, uh, the German league, because that's the way that I like to play. Because that's the way I learned how to play. And it's all because of Coach P. Coach P absolutely changed my perspective as an athlete. He encouraged me. He mentored me. And his example made all the difference to my success. You see, in the Christian life, we need mentors, don't we? We need people who encourage us and motivate us and teach us. We need a spiritual coach or coaches to show us by example. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is that coach that teaches us by example. And he wraps up the book of 1 Corinthians by giving us a peek into his life as an apostle to the Gentiles. This is a very simple message. We're going to look at how Paul motivates, encourages, and teaches us by his example. And so, if you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, we want to look, number one, at the example of generosity. The first principle we need to see is the need to give generously. Let's look in verse 1. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Stop right there. What was going on? Well, Paul was gathering money from the Gentile churches to give to the church at Jerusalem. Now, why was he doing that? Well, the reason was twofold. Number one, Jerusalem was experiencing a severe famine and the people were starving. They lacked essentials like food and resources. But number two is very much more specific. Number two, the reason why he was doing this was the Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing strong persecution. So on top of the fact that there was a famine in the land, these Christians were enduring this famine where the government was not supporting the Christians. They didn't like the Christians. They didn't want to support them in that city. And so Paul felt the need to collect and raise money from all over the Roman Empire, from Corinth and Galatia and Thessaloniki and Berea and even Rome. He wrote and, and, and sent to the regions of Macedonia and Achaia, to the region of Asia Minor, to the Italian peninsula, because the heart of Paul was to give generously to his fellow brothers and sisters who were in great need. And that's how he closes this out in this chapter. Paul is collecting that money, and he reminds the Corinthian Christians that they need to be a part of this also. That is why he says in this letter, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Let's look in verse 2. Let's continue reading. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, 
and saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approved and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So Paul gives instructions on how to collect this money. And I notice what he says they all need to do. On the first day of every week, set aside that money. Save it up every week. Here he gives a very strong principle. Make a habit of regular generous giving. Make it a habit every week. Set it aside. And notice what he says. When I come to you, I don't want you to be looking in your pockets for pocket change either. I want you to be setting aside this this amount of money. Now, why does he say this? It's because he knows human nature. And even Christian human nature was not to give. You know, there are two erroneous attitudes, if we could put this up, two erroneous attitudes to money that many of us have. Number one, embracing money as an addiction. Let me say that again, embracing money as an addiction. Let me ask you this question. What is the lure of money in our lives? It's a very strong lure, isn't it? It promises happiness if we possess it. Think about this. Number one, it promises to satisfy the desires that we have. If we can buy the things that we want uh, and have a burning desire for, then we can be happy. If we buy that Porsche, if we buy that luxurious mansion, if we can afford the trips and jet-setting around, if we can wear the bling, I don't know if bling is, is the right word nowadays. Is, is that the cool word? No, I, I'm not sure, okay? But, but if we wear the stuff, right? Money promises to extinguish our burning desires and to make us happy. Number two, it promises a great sense of self-worth. If I have great wealth, others are going to want me, right? I'll have value. I'll have worth. I'll be a somebody, I'll be attractive to others. Others will envy where I am in my status. I'll be attracted to the opposite sex. They'll want to date me because of how much money I have. And so money promises to build up your self-worth through your net worth, right? It promises to satisfy the desires we have. It promises a great sense of self-worth. You know what else it promises? A sense of security and freedom. If you think, if I'm rich, then I have the freedom to choose, don't I? Money allows me to control my situation and circumstances. It gives me the power to choose. And so because of choice, I have security. And that security is going to make me truly happy. You see, money promises to give you all of these things. And to an extent, it can do that. But money ultimately fails because it's only temporary. It cannot fulfill your deepest need. Money ultimately leaves you unhappy if you choose to embrace it addictively. You know, uh, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 5, you don't have to turn there, but just let me say this. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 15, it's a part of what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. It was written by Solomon, the richest man of his time. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Which means the more you have, the more you want. Verse 10, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Which means the more you have, the less you're satisfied. Verse 11, when goods increase, those who consume them increase. Which means 
The more you have, the more people will come after it. Verse 11, what benefit to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The more you have, the more it loses its novelty. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep, which means the more you have, the more you worry about it. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more harm is you hoard it. Verse 14, wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And then in verse 15, naked a man comes from his mother's womb and naked he com- and naked and as he comes so he departs he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand which means the more you have the more you leave behind you see if wealth is the secret to happiness solomon says you will be sorely disappointed because it cannot fulfill what it promises but that's what money tries to do it's an idol Now, what is an idol? It's something that tries to replace God in our worship. And money tries to do that. All of the desires that we have for security, for self-worth, for freedom, for satisfaction, they've all been placed there by God. They were designed with those deep needs that can only be fulfilled by our creator. But money tells us that it can fulfill those God-given needs if we worship it by embracing it as our all-consuming addiction in our lives. And you know, we as Christians, we, can, we, we know that it cannot deliver it. Amen? We know that it's not what it claims to be. And so as Christians, we say we reject money. But here is the other extreme that we can go on. We can despise money as evil. Right? We don't embrace it as an addiction, but maybe what we do is we despise money as evil. And Christians can over-spiritualize wealth. They can say, I don't need money. God will just provide for me. I don't need money. It's the root of all evil. How many of you, you've heard the term, money is the root of all evil? And you think that's from the Bible. You know, that's a misquote of the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. So that money is not evil. Money is neutral. It's the love of money. And that's what we've been talking about. It leads to greed and envy and covetousness and discontent. It can lead to stealing and murdering. It leads to a host of evils if we, and we talked about it before, if we embrace it as an addiction. But money is neutral. It's what we do with it that matters. So when we over-spiritualize our view of wealth, we can become apathetic and unproductive and lazy to the world that we live in, to the world at large. So let me say it this way. Money can become an idol in your life, or you can become idol in your life because of your view of money. And so embracing money as an addiction is not the answer, but neither is despising money as an evil. What is the answer? Could you put this up? It's using money as an investment. As Christians, We need to use it as an investment. And that's what you do with money. And it's what you do with money that really matters. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus expects his people to use their wealth for his kingdom. Amen? Not hoarding wealth, but investing it in eternal rewards, eternal things. What if Christians saw giving as an investment? Instead of seeing uh, giving as a duty or some inconvenience, what if we saw it as an opportunity to invest in kingdom stocks? As an opportunity to accumulate treasures in heaven where, our, where we please our creator and our redeemer. And so I have to ask you, is your, what is your investment today? How is your investment? How is the treasure that you're putting into the kingdom of God and his purpose here on this earth? That's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians. Not to be preoccupied with worldly treasure, but to give generously. To generously invest in things that last forever and forever. You know, a farmer put it this way. I love this. Money is like cow manure, right? Hoard it up and it stinks, but spread it around and it makes things grow. You know, that's what Paul is saying. Are you giving generously? Are you helping God's kingdom to spread and to grow? So number one, Paul's example of generosity, the need to give generously. The second one is Paul's example of flexibility, okay? And it's the principle of open and closed doors. I can't talk on this today. We don't have enough time, okay? But someday, I think in the future, I'm going to talk about this idea of flexibility. I think it's really important for the Christian. But we're going to actually move on to the third point. Can we put it up? The example of, you're thinking, why did you even share this? I'm a little bit anal. That's, that's kind of how I am. So I have to at least say it, okay, even though I don't teach it. All right. So the third principle is the example of community, okay? And we look at it in verse 10, or 10 through 20. The third principle is the need to live in community, okay? Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 58, that's the last verse of uh, chapter 15 before you go into uh, chapter 16, I really believe that's, that's kind of the idea of the whole of chapter 16, okay? So let me, let me read it to you. It says, therefore, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying, and that's why chapter 16 looks the way that it looks. In the middle of chapter 16, in verse 13 and 14, he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. So what am I saying? Well, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians to be about the work of the Lord. And he tells them to stand firm, be courageous, be strong, be loving, serve God to the fullest. But I want you to notice how Paul lives that out in his life. Here's the example I want you to catch. He lives it out through a community. Isn't that good? Verses 10 through verses 20, you see names like Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Aquila, Priscilla, hard names that you've never, you don't really recognize. But here is the example that the Apostle Paul was to serve the Lord in the company of friends. In the company of friends. I'll illustrate this in a second. We can have the mistaken view that Paul did his ministry like a lone ranger. That Paul was the Mandalorian, right? Roaming the galaxy alone. 
Probably the greatest Mandalorian that, that we know of is Boba Fett, right? That lone bounty hunter. <clears throat> but if you ever, how many of you watched the book of Boba Fett? Boba Fett, would you raise your hand? Okay, good. So I, I think enough people have seen it where I can share this. He learns from the Tusken Raiders, what? That everyone needs a tribe. That's the theme of the whole book of Boba Fett. And so Fennec Shand and Black Christanton and the Rancor become his tribe. Isn't that beautiful? And so even the Mandalorian learns that tribe is needed. And here, I know, that's nerdy. Okay, and Paul is just like the Mandalorian, thank you, that Paul never does ministry as a loner. He was always with people. It's always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke, Paul and Titus, Paul and John Mark. So Paul's example that is that he fully did God's work with friends. And I want you to see it in this passage. Number one, I want you to see that Paul protects Timothy. Let's look in verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Verse 11. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him. Now, why did Paul say all this to the Corinthians? It's because Paul is sending Timothy with the letter that we've just studied. Paul rebukes the church in the book of 1 Corinthians. He rebukes them for the sins of division and dissension. He rebukes them for the sin of their worldliness. He rebukes them for sins regarding uh, immorality and sexual perversion. He rebukes them of the sin of arrogance and abuse. He knows the backlash that Timothy could receive that they might shoot the messenger. And so Paul warns them, don't intimidate Timothy. You know, this teaches us something, doesn't it? As Christians, we all need Timothys in our life. Younger saints that we can disciple, that we could pour into, right? They're going to be the future leaders of, you know, Christendom and even the kingdom and even this church. So let me ask you, who is the Timothy that you're pouring into? Who's that person in community that you're helping? You know, I love campus ministry. I love college students. I'm 53 years old, and I still get excited when I hang out with college students, right? And you know why that is? Not because I'm weird or anything like that. It's because I get to be a part of their transformation. And I've always viewed my job to be a greenhouse for collegians. What does a greenhouse do? Well, it gives sunlight, it gives nutrients, but it also is a house that protects from danger, that shields from toxins so that that plant can grow. And that's exactly what Paul does. He sends Timothy on this important mission, on this important ministry with this important letter, but at the same time, he says, hey, don't pick on him, don't do anything to him, you're going to have to mess with me, right? I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he's saying, okay? The next one. Not only uh, does Paul do that with Timothy, Paul respects Apollos. Look at this, verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you, or to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Now, why did Paul want Apollos to go? Now, remember, in our study, the Corinthians had developed factions around Paul and Apollos. They were divided over these personalities. So Apollos going with Paul's letter could have sent a strong message of solidarity. 
could have sent a strong message that they're in agreement. Apollos, with his mighty preaching, could have even called the Corinthians to repent of their division and dissension. It would have been beautiful. And so that is why Paul strongly urges, get that, strongly urges Apollos, you need to go there. But get, get this, and this is surprising. Apollos is quite unwilling to even go at Paul's pleading. We don't know why he was quite unwilling, but I want you to notice the response of Paul. He doesn't demand and dominate Apollos. He doesn't pull the, do you know who I am card? I'm an apostle to the Gentiles trump card. He could have done that, right? You need to follow me. But he respects Apollos as his partner and his co-laborer. You see, Paul's example shows that he recognized that he was on a team. Have you ever heard the adage, there's no I in team? That's how Paul lived. He recognized the value of the people that he ministered with on this team. That they have their own vision, God-given. And they have their own perspectives that is given by God. That they have their unique gifts. And they have their special skills that were given by God. So he doesn't see himself as the sole servant of God. He rather sees himself on a team of servants of the Lord. Can I get an amen? And so Paul is, un, is willing to submit and be accountable to the team that he's serving with. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Wilson came up here and he shared how he sees me as a big brother, right? And Chrissy is a big sister and how he really values us. I got all choked up, to be honest with you. I was in the back, you know, and I, I got choked up because it just felt so good to know that Wilson feels that way. And so I'm going to talk about him a little bit too, you know. Wilson's actually a very charismatic, very capable, very great communicator. He's a great leader. God's been using him. And so I'm always excited and, you know, I'm thrilled to be able to minister, you know, with Wilson. But the thing that I love most about him is he's willing to submit and be accountable to the team. He's never pulled a card on me, right? Asian pastor card, they always use it. He's never done that to me, right? He's always worked with me as a big brother or as somebody who's on a team. And so that's really important. That's the kind of church that you're at. You can be happy about that, right? That we work together. So Paul, let me, let me say this. Paul protects Timothy. Paul respects Apollos. And then let, let's look thirdly. Paul reflects on Stephanus, okay? So let's look in verse 15. You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Now, why was this household so important to Paul? Now, remember, if you, uh, if you remember the book of Acts, when Paul was headed to Asia on his missions trip, he sees a vision, a Macedonian vision, of a man from Macedonia saying, come to our region and help us. He knew that this was from the Lord, and so he hard pivoted from going to Asia to Macedonia and Achaia, to the Greek region, right? So he, he, he's intent on going to Asia, but he hard pivots and he moved towards Europe, to Greece. Now, because of that, listen to me, Stephanus and his family were the first converts in the area of Achaia, specifically in the city of Corinth, to get saved because of Paul's obedience to hard pivot in that direction. Do you see why Paul... Uh, mentions them. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.16, we studied this already, Paul baptized that whole family. 
right? That's the implication is he led that whole family to Jesus Christ. So let me, let me put this in perspective. Paul brought this household to Jesus. They all got saved. Paul baptized them for Jesus. Then Paul discipled them for Jesus. And now they're fully devoted. The word means addicted. They're fully addicted to serving the saints in the ministry. That had to have been an amazing motivation for the Apostle Paul. You know, a couple days ago, I was meeting with a, a young student, uh, actually a student leader from Crew. Uh, he wanted to actually talk about ministry and about life with me. And so I told him, let's meet for breakfast at Panera Bread. So a couple days ago, I was, uh, you know, uh, getting there. I got there a little early uh, to, to kind of prepare uh, so that we can meet. And I met somebody that I hadn't seen in years, uh, a pastor. His name is Paul Lee. Uh, and he came up to me, and he was wearing a mask, so I didn't even recognize him. But he said, hey, Pastor Dave, it's so good to see you. I hadn't seen him in years, okay? And so we started catching up. We started talking. Come to find out, uh, this pastor was a is actually going to go to New York with his family and take over uh, a missions uh, agency. And so he's going to be doing missions, and uh, he's going to be doing that. And it was just so exciting to be able to catch up on, on ministry and, and what he's doing for the Lord. And then he asked me, what am I doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm meeting with uh, a young uh, college student, uh, a young uh, student leader, and uh, we're going to talk about ministry and we're going to talk about all these things. And I remember the gleam in his eye where he said, hey, you still love working with college students, don't you? And I, I smiled so big. I was so excited. I, I looked at him. I go, Paul, you were one of my college students. You were one of those guys, just like this guy. And now look at where you are. And it got me so excited. And my joy, when the guy finally came, right, this new college student, my joy was introducing a past college student I had worked with to a new collegian that I'm now working with. And as they shook hands, I know they didn't care. Like, ah, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> but I was so excited. I was so excited. Because that is what God has been working in my life to do. You see, when times get tough in your Christian life, when you're discouraged, when you want to quit, when you doubt the leading of the Lord, remember the household of Stephanus. Look back at the people that you've touched, that you've ministered to. See the men and women who are stronger now, who are addicted to Jesus because of you. That's a memorial. They're tangible reminders that you're doing an important work, that your life is not in vain. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, number four. Paul collects Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. I want you to notice that Paul is in the habit of collecting friends. He recognizes three men who came from Corinth to encourage him. And he never neglects to be around Christian people who refresh his spirit. We've got to get in the habit of that. You know, I love being in staff meetings. We have staff meeting every Tuesday. I love being around everybody in staff meeting. But you know who I love seeing more than, well, maybe not more than anybody else, but I get excited about seeing, other people might get jealous, is Erwin, Becca, and Kevin, our interns, okay? I love seeing them every week. You know why? Because they have refreshed me so much. Uh, with Erwin, he's sitting back there. I don't want to embarrass him too much. But he counsels me. He's a, he's a high school teacher, right? Uh, and he's also a high school pastor. 
and he counsels me. My daughter's in high school, right? And he counsels me about that life stage. He gives me wisdom. Erwin has so much wisdom for the age that he is, but he gives so much wisdom. And I love, love talking to him. Becca, she intercedes for me all the time. She sends me texts. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your family. Kevin and I, I just got one actually a day ago. I'm, Kevin and I are praying for, you know, and, and I just got so excited because she's always interceding for me. She's always praying for me. And when I'm around her, I just sense, wow, the Lord's doing something. And she really cares about it. I care about her too, you know. And not only that, but Kevin, oh, he's an encouragement machine, right? When you're around Kevin, you're so encouraged, right? The things he says, his warm smile, he's so encouraging. And we always get to talk about, because both of us love collegians, and so we strategize and we talk about that. You know, these three are my Stephanitis, or Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They refresh my spirit. Hey, can I ask you, are you a friend collector this morning? I believe your best friends should be Christians. This isn't Bible. This is my opinion from years of doing ministry. I believe your best friends should be Christians. You have the same Lord. You have the same purpose. You have the same Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so you can refresh each other spiritually. And I really believe that's the strongest bond that you can have. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Steve and Patty aren't here today. I, I knew that they weren't here, so I wanted to talk about them. I'm so excited that the Chuns are at our church. And, uh, you know, I've known Steve uh, since 2000, so 20-plus years, right? And countless times uh, I've shared blessings and prayer requests with him. We've gone to lunch, and I've shared hurts and doubts. You know, they've supported me financially and spiritually. Steve has been that person who has warned me of things and who's also congratulated me for things. And let me say this. This isn't exaggeration. He's not here, so I don't have to feel weird about this. I don't know if I would be in ministry if I didn't have Steve in my life, if God didn't give me someone like that. So let me ask you, are you collecting those kind of people? You need people who are going to be refreshing to you. And then lastly, Paul connects with Aquila and Priscilla. Don't you love this? Verse 19. I'm, I, I got to, you know, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to push on to the most important thing. The Bible says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. You know, that word in the NIV is actually the wrong word, okay? If you look in the other texts, the better translated word is this idea of enthusiastically, heartily. It has the idea of cheering. That Aquila and Priscilla, who came with Paul when they first came into Corinth and they started this church, they're with him in Ephesus and they are cheering them on in the faith. You know, my wife and I, uh, we have this uh, word that we always uh, text each other uh, if we have big things or important things that we're doing. It's the word fighting, okay? Now, in Korean, it's pronounced whiting, all right? But it really is the same word, right? Fighting, whiting. But it's the idea of cheering somebody on. Hey, let's fight together, right? Not fight together, but fight together, okay? You know, let's go and, and, and let's do this. And it's a show of support. You got this. You can do this. That's what Aquila and Priscilla are doing. They're text fighting to, or whiting to the, to the Corinthian church. They're saying, hey, you can change. You can turn things around. You got this. 
You see, it's so important to be able to connect with each other. You know the reason why we have breakout times where we come together and, and, and we share things and we pray for uh, each other is we don't want you to leave this church not having talked to anybody, not having been ministered or to minister to each other. It would be an absolute shame if all you did at this church was to attend it and then to escape in the back having just seen a bunch of the backs of people's heads. You see, that would be, I remember visiting a church, uh, you know, four weeks, uh, I, I, I visited this church, and no one talked to me except for the guy that was assigned to talk, the, the welcome guy. And the first time I came through, uh, he looked at me, he goes, nice shirt, right? And the second time I, I came through, right, the second Sunday, he looked at me, he goes, nice shirt, right? And the third time, he said, nice shoes, right? And the fourth time, he commented about my clothes again. And I started thinking to myself, if all he ever knew about me was my wardrobe after many weeks of being there, then that's not what we want. Because I'll still feel alone and I'll still feel isolated. You see, that's why we come together and we work at community and seeing each other. Because we were never meant to isolate and to be alone. Are you connecting with your community here at Renew? There's a deep, meaningful time that we need to have with other brothers and sisters who are cheering us on in the faith that we're living. Can I get an amen? We all are on a team. We're all making a contribution. We're all growing together. We're all fulfilling our purpose that the Lord has for us together. And so we need to do it just like Paul gives us the example in a company of friends. Would you show this uh, slide really quick? I want you to see what Paul does in living in a community. Just take a look at it. Meditate on it for a second. What example does Jesus want you to follow? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we were able to finish your beautiful book of 1 Corinthians. We ask, Lord, that even the example at the end would be something that we could follow, that we would give generously that we would live flexibly, and Lord, that we would always, always work within a community. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you.
God bless.